open your copy of God's Word, whether it's through an app or paper copy, uh, to Romans chapter 9. Those of you who remember, before the pandemic hit, I was preaching through the book of Romans and got through chapter 8 and then pandemic hit and I stopped to uh, engage with that and we've been doing that since. Well, Governor McMaster declared this week that we're done. No emergency services are needed uh, for COVID. And so it's time to come back to Romans. That, yes, that's just what we do. So we're in Romans 9. We're picking up right where we left off over a year ago. Uh, Romans chapter 9. It's such a, a, a long chapter. I'm not going to read it at the beginning. I'll read it verse by verse as I go through. Um, and encourage you to go back and reread it as, as you have time. But um, why return to Romans? That's kind of a practical reason. As we get into chapters 9, 10, and 11, it's all about God's sovereignty. Um, and it's a long illustration, really, of, of how Israel plays into God's sovereign plan. And it's confusing and difficult for a lot of people. But sovereignty is a good issue. Sovereignty is a good theme for us right now. Because uh, how many of you think you did pretty good during the pandemic? You know, I could ask you, you know, and you would say, well, you know, I, I think I did pretty good. You know, I did the mask thing, did social distancing thing. I did, the, you know, uh, just, I did, I did it pretty good. You know, I survived. I'm, I'm doing all right. What do we call that? We call that pride. Pride. And why do we call that pride? Because when I ask that question, I hardly ever get anybody to answer, say, God was gracious to me during the pandemic. God did this, God did this, and God did that. It's really a lot of times more about us. Um, and we, we forget this sovereign God who's over us doing stuff. And that's what I want us to think about is, is the sovereign God and His activity in our lives. Not so much about the pandemic. He's definitely over all of that. But over salvation and God's sovereignty there. And that's where Romans 9 leads us. I don't know about you, but uh, I used to tell this to my brothers uh, when I was growing up, and uh, you may have done the same kind of thing. Um, whereas, you know, they would say to me, David, you need to get in there and vacuum like Mom said, or you need to get out there in the yard and clean it up. Dad, Dad said you needed to do that. And I would say, you're not the boss of me. You don't tell me what to do. That's where so many times we are. It's like, I don't like the idea that somebody is over me. That somebody else is the boss. And somebody else gets to choose what I do and when I do it. And yet, God is over us. And God is the boss. And God is in charge. And He does get to choose what's going to happen in our lives we need to constantly be reminded of that. Romans 9, again, pulls us back to that understanding that God is sovereign. He chooses. He's in charge. Now, let me just quickly catch you up on where we are. If you remember Romans 8, I did a number of messages in Romans 8 on the love of God. And I ended with a passage just about the love of God in Romans 8. Romans 8 is that great passage that says you cannot be separated from the love of God. 
when God sets His love upon you, how could you possibly be separated again from it? So a strong passage on love and God's choosing. It's that passage that uses election and predestination. God's elected to love you. He's predestined you to be conformed to the image of Christ because He has loved you and chosen you. Romans 8. Suppose you were a Jew and you just heard that. Say, said, well, wait a minute. Now we're getting to chapter 9. What about the Jews? If God loves somebody and you can't be separated from that love, are not the Jews now separated from the love of God? Did not God choose them as a special holy people and a holy nation? And then, well, they're cut off. What's with that? Since I thought you just, in a strong way, said you can't be separated from the love of God. It's a great question. So God gives us chapter 9 to answer that question. And it's a question not only the Jews have struggled with, but many of us have struggled with uh, over the years as well. I want you to see several things the Jews were miss- missing when they struggled with this question. One of them was that religious privilege does not guarantee God's choosing of us. Any kind of privilege, for that matter, does not guarantee God's choosing of us. And so the first part of this chapter, he, he deals with that privilege that they had. Uh, like I said, I'll just read it little by little. The Jews were going to hell as a group. Now we, we'll see even more later. Uh, Paul says, I'm a Jew. So Paul wasn't going to hell. So not all Jews were going to hell. But as a group, where God has set his love upon them, they were going to hell. Uh, and Paul prays about that. Verses chapter 9. Let me read uh, the first four or five verses. He says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. Am I not? I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were a curse separated from Christ for the sake of my Brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Now, let's stop right there and think about it. Paul says, you're asking a great question. He says, I grieve unceasingly. I know people by name. They are my kinsmen. They are my family. They are going to hell. And I hurt for their condition so much. I've even asked God, let me go to hell in their place. Wow. What love. What understanding he has of the issue that's going on here. We, many of us have prayed for a son or a daughter. We know they're on the road to hell. And we say, God, no. How could you possibly let them get baptized and then walk away? No. We don't want that. And he was grieving over that. That's the condition. So it's not like Jews aren't going to hell. He knew firmly they were. And he's pleading with God to somehow come back to them. And then he begins to illustrate 
the privilege they had, and they were really putting their security in privilege more than in God. It begins in verse 4. Israelites to whom belongs, and then he gives a list, and I put them up there, this list of eight things that the Israelites had that are just bam, 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 bam listed here. First of all, they had adoption of sons. They are the only nation on the planet where God says to them as a nation, you are my son. Pretty significant designation. Goes on, and the glory of the covenants. The Jews were the ones who first understood God entered into relationship with us by way of covenant. And he made a covenant with Abraham, and a covenant with Isaac, and a covenant with Jacob, and a covenant with David, and ultimately in the Lord's Supper, the new covenant in Christ. The Jews understood covenant. They understood that God came to them one day and said, I want you to mark out yourself and your children with a covenant sign. So they get that. That's a great privilege to have that. And the giving of the law. They were the, the, the nation that stood there before Mount Sinai when God came down and the whole mountain quaked and shook and it was clear God was in their midst. And they were given the word of God written by God's finger on stone. What a privilege. They knew the will of God specifically written for them. Goes on, given the covenant, given the law, and the temple service. They were told more than we are, really, how to worship God. You have a God before whom you will go and you make certain sacrifices. There needs to be the spilling of blood for the atonement of sin. And they were taught all of this by Moses and by the priest. Um, goes on, uh, the temple service and promises. They were given specific promises from God that they would be blessed. Verse 5, whose are the fathers? They had the fathers of our faith first, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Who are those guys? They're Jews. All Jews. Oh, they had that right to say, we are heirs. Physical heirs of, of these men. This is our heritage, our lineage. They had church, the church fathers, and they had an ancestry. Um, the fathers were and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh. You think about that. Most of the movies that picture Christ, I've never seen one that gets it all right. But usually they don't even start with the right ancestry. The Jews were said Christ came to their nation. Christ looks like a Jew. Christ looks more like this Asian guy that was up here than, than any of the rest of us who don't have that complexion. The Jews could say, of all the people on earth, of all the ethnicities, God had to choose one to become like us, to become human flesh. And God chose the Jewish ethnicity as his. Does that not make you feel special? If you're a Jew. And God's 
point in all of that is to say, you know, you've been a chosen race, a Jewish race. What an honor. What a privilege. So why hell for those people? Why hell when God has done so much? It's tough. It's hard for us to get. As I was thinking of an analogy, it's, 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 it's a lot like in our culture. Jesus saying, it's hard for a rich man to go to heaven. I was telling somebody this week, I'd love to do a series on that. Ten reasons why it's hard for a rich man to get to heaven. But I don't know if God would give me that much time to preach all the things I want to preach. But why is it hard for a rich man to go to heaven? One of the primary reasons, or a rich woman, whoever, is privilege. Privilege. Just as the Jews had great privilege, the wealthy have great privilege. And they find it difficult to believe there's something they can't do. They find it difficult to believe that there's a boss under the, over them that they have to be subservient to. It's hard to realize you don't get to heaven by privilege. And we've added to wealth privilege so many other privileges today that we talk about. You're privileged because... You're wealthy, you're privileged because you're white, you're privileged because you're black, or you're privileged because you're sexy, or you're privileged because you're physically fit, or you're privileged because you're an intellect. We have so many things that we use as privilege, and we think somehow that that's what earns us entrance into heaven, and God says, no, 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 I'm separate from all of that. God does not bring the Jews into heaven because of privilege. Their need is our need. No one gets to heaven but God be sovereignly merciful to choose sinners. We're all sinful by nature, born into sin, and we are going to hell unless God is merciful. Such a misunderstanding of salvation is prevalent. We think we are somebody by our privilege. And that's not going to get us to heaven. We need sovereign mercy. It goes on. Let's keep going with the passage. Not only do we sometimes think we're going to make it because we've always made it on earth. We're privileged. He says you also won't make it by twisting the scripture. Scripture twisting does not guarantee God's choosing of us. It's, I think it's going to blow a lot of people away when they die and it's appointed and the man wants to die and then after that the judgment and we're going to face God. And you're going to be having these thoughts, many people will, in their head. But I thought the scripture said. I thought the scripture said. God blesses good people. I thought the scripture said. God helps those who help themselves. I thought good people go to heaven. So many people think those verses are in the Bible. They're not. 
And we twist the Scripture to do that. The Jews were twisting the Scripture. I thought all Israel was saved. And I'm Israel. God says, that is not what the Bible says. And so verse 6, he starts explaining that. Verse 6, but it's not as though the Word of God has failed. So the problem is not with the Word of God. The problem is we didn't understand it right. Or we didn't even read it. We didn't interpret it correctly. Scripture has not failed. For they are not all, makes it clear right off the bat, they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. In other words, all of Israel is not going to heaven. Not all. I never said that. God's word has not failed. We mis misinterpreted it. Verse 7, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. Now, he's doing several things there. Clearing up interpretation. God didn't fail. Never promised all to be saved. And then you say, well, our fathers are, are Jews. And so, you know, isn't there some sort of inheritance right? If, if our father went to heaven, then don't we go to heaven? And he says, well, you would think that, perhaps. But that's not what I've ever said. And he, he starts giving the descendants. He says, through, the, through uh, Isaac, the descendants will be named. Well, what's he doing there? Abraham too, had two kids, remember? Who was the firstborn? Ishmael. So the firstborn is supposed to have rights to the inheritance, right? More than the secondborn. And then he throws out Isaac's the secondborn. He says, you would think you, if you were going to be an heir, you'd be an heir through Ishmael, but I chose to bless the Isaac's line, not Ishmael's line. Well, that's interesting. Kind of throws them back. Well, and then he, he gives another one. That would say, well, Ishmael, you know, different mother. Maybe there's some controversy there. He, he comes with another illustration, verse 8 and 9. That is, it's not the children of flesh who are children of God, but the children of the life, children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise at this time. I will come, and Sarah will have a son. So he's illustrating. It's what I say, and you've got to get what I say right. That's what leads to faith in Christ. And then he mentions Sarah's sons, uh, verse 10. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also. When she had conceived twins by one man. So we're dealing with getting rid of the two-woman issue. We're getting rid of firstborn issue. Now we're down to twins. Same woman, twins, literally born at the same time. Now they make a fuss over firstborn and secondborn, but practically speaking, one's sticking his hand out and the other one's coming. You know, it's, it's like Given an illustration of being born at the same time, same woman, same dad, who gets the rights? That's where he's going with all this. Verse 11, For though the twins were not yet born, hadn't done anything good or bad, what's the point? So that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was to her it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. So the firstborn, again, comes up under the second here. Serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Um, you've got the same father, that's not going to save you. Not going to get the same inheritance. Uh, 
Don't misinterpret. It's not about human privilege. It's not about human heritage that's going to save us. Um, Ishmael wasn't blessed. Isaac was. Esau wasn't blessed. Jacob was. God chose Isaac. God chose Jacob. Doesn't choose race. Race won't save you. Being white won't save you. Being wealthy won't save you. Being privileged won't save you. Being black won't save you. Being um, female won't save you. Being male won't save you. Being a child won't save you. None of these things save us. It's God's choice. Verse 11. But purpose according to His choice. God's choice alone. God's basis is His choice. He's not looking at us. And our privilege when he passes out salvation. Let me make it real clear. Without election, back in Romans 8, without election, salvation is by works. Do you understand that? Without God sovereignly electing who he's taking to heaven, salvation is by works. If God doesn't choose then who chooses you, we do well then it's your works of choosing and your works of whatever and so many people are convinced of that he says no you're twisting the scripture here it's not about you it's not about your daddy and it's not about your mama it's not about you it's about God's choice I said well where does that leave us it leaves us with begging for God's mercy. Unless God be merciful and choose me, then I'm going to hell. That's where it leaves us. The Jew needed to hear that. The Gentile needs to hear that. Salvation, the one who created heaven and earth, promises that to those he chooses to be his. Well, as you think about that, he, he continues building this argument. Not only will your scripture twisting not get you there, not only will your privilege won't get you there, but you say, some of you might say at this point, well, wait a minute. If nothing I can do is going to get me there, that's not fair. That doesn't seem fair. And so God deals with the whole fairness issue. He says, no, 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 let me, let me clear that up for you too. God's sovereign choice is fair over and over and over again. And he proves it by the rest of this chapter. God's fairness in salvation, uh, it is fair. First of all, he says, let me show you with Moses and Pharaoh. I'm going to prove that through Moses and Pharaoh, God is fair. Verses 15 16, 17, 18 or so. So verse 15, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy. See, it's all about his mercy. On whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, so then doesn't stand, does not depend on man who wills or the man who runs, but it's on God who has mercy. Now let me ask a question before we go further. Where does that text come from? He says, he said to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. 
I won't take the time to look it up, but I'll just tell you. You can look it up. It's, it's Exodus um, 33, 19, I think. Now, I want to take you back to Exodus 32. What happened in Exodus 32? That's when Moses comes down off the mountain, and he's got the Ten Commandments in his, his hand, you know, arm. He's carrying it, and he hears noise. And what's Aaron and the Israelites doing? They're having a party. They're, they're, they're worshiping an idol. They've taken off their jewelry. They've melted it down. They've fashioned a golden cow. And they're bowing down and they're worshiping. Exodus 32. Moses comes down from that mountain and he is blowing smoke. He is furious. Throws down the Ten Commandments. Crushes them. Grinds it into powder and makes the people drink it. He's so furious. And he's stomping back up the mountain to see God and deal with this whole thing. Because this is, this is the worst it could get. And when he gets back up on the mountain... God says, I'm going to wipe them out. And Moses kneels down and he pleads with God, no. Just like Paul has, begins this chapter, chapter 9. Take me, don't take them. Don't, don't wipe them all out. Don't send them all to hell. And that's where God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. He says, I just saved those people from 400 years of slavery. I showed them my power and my redemption and my greatness through 10 plagues coming out of Egypt. I brought them to this mountain. I quaked and I smoked and I showed them my power and my glory. And they knew I was in their midst. And then they're going to turn around, spit in my face, and worship a cow. You tell me it's not fair to send them to hell? What planet are you on? It's absolutely fair. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. They all deserve hell. See, you get it? God's God. Thankfully, as Moses prayed, God showed mercy to some. Moses proves the fairness of God in his example. But then he goes on to Pharaoh, and he does the same again. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose, very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he has mercy. He desires and he hardens whom he desires. You can read the story of Pharaoh, how Pharaoh did not, 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 again and again and again, want to worship God, please God, bless God's people. It wasn't a big deal for God to say, I'm done with Pharaoh. Pharaoh's been spitting in my face ten times. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Salvation is by God's sovereign choice alone. I'm convinced I don't really get it until I am always, always, always amazed that He would save me. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. 
I do not deserve to go to heaven. Nothing in me merits heaven. Nothing in me is attractive to God. He doesn't put there himself. My place in God's kingdom, my place in glory is because of God's sovereign mercy alone. Where does that leave you? It leaves you begging for God's mercy. Begging for God's mercy or we will not be saved. Moses and Pharaoh's example prove God is fair. Then he goes to creator rights. Let's talk about who's creator here. Creator rights prove God is fair. Verses 19 to 21. He says, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? How, how can you even do that? Answer back to God. The thing molded will not, cannot, will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? You get that. If you're making, fashioning something out of clay, you know, you, you plop down, boom, this, this clay, and you start molding it and fashioning it, and you find that you don't need all of it, so you cut part off and you toss it somewhere, maybe even into the trash. That's not a lump I need. I'm going to use this, and you make it. He says, the clay never speaks back and says, why did you throw one in the trash and why did you make this one beautiful? Does it? No, because it doesn't have the right to do that. It can't do that. It will not do that. The creator is in charge. And the creator gets to do what the creator wants to do with the clay. So who are we to say back to God, why did you make me like this? Why did you direct me like this? It's his prerogative as creator. We must submit to him. Consider his rights, not ours. And then he mentions another reason of his fairness, and that's redeemer rights. Go beyond creator rights to redeemer rights. Verse 22. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So there he's showing it. God saves Jews and Gentiles. Some of us he's chosen for that purpose. And he quotes Hosea. Verse 25, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who is not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. And then he goes to Isaiah. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabbath had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. It hit me as I was reading that last verse, verse 29. The description God gives of himself 
The very description itself proves that he's fair. What's the description? Description is Lord of the Sabbath. You remember the fourth commandment, right? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? You remember as they were having controversies about the Sabbath? Jesus used that title for himself. He says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. It's not man was made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man. The Lord of the Sabbath has authority to do these things. But as I evaluate my life against the fourth commandment, can any one of us say here, I have kept the fourth commandment? That I have honored the Lord of the Sabbath? We have, as a nation, have become so comfortable with saying we're in charge. And even on Sundays, we can now turn on a little TV and sit back in our pajamas. Oh, let me get up and get lunch started. Come back and watch the online service and scroll through our Instagram at the same time and do all of this. And we can do the same thing in here. We could come in and our focus really isn't Godward. And do we think we're honoring Lord of the Sabbath? And the, you know, there's times when we are spitting in God's eye. God, I, I know you ordained, you want me before your face, in the midst of your people, one day out of seven, but today, it's raining. No, the sun just came out. We're going to the lake, Jesus. Really? Okay. Well, how have you honored me? It's not that the lake's wrong. It's not that you can't do that. But you get what I'm saying. Do we check with God first? Do we honor Him first the way His Word says? And He's, he's making a big deal. He says, I'm your Redeemer. I give you these commands as your love language back to your Redeemer, to me. Are you using them that way? Are you loving me as I want you to love me in response to your Redeemer? How is it the redeemed thinks they can say to God, you don't have a right to do that. You don't have a right to put anything on me. You don't have a right to keep me out of heaven because I know I'm redeemed. And Paul makes a big deal. Well, there's some that are Jews that are redeemed. There's some that are Gentiles that are redeemed. And God has indeed said there were people who weren't my people who are now my people. And there were people who thought they were my people who are now not my people. And it's all because we missed the fact that he only, not only has creator rights, but he has redeemer rights. Let me put it to you. So many ways I, I could put it to you. Uh, as a redeemer, you know, when I go to Lowe's, Lowe's is the, the store I go to that does this more often than, than others. That's why I pick it out. I go to Lowe's and I buy whatever, $10 worth of stuff. And I get this, this big old long receipt. And first, you know, you just spent $10. What's this? They said, oh, well, that's, that's uh, online. If you do this online survey, if you go to this place, you will receive... $10 in coupons or rewards. I said, well, I just spent 10 and you're going to give me 10 But I got to go online and do all this stuff. Redeem 
The reward. I don't know about you, but I, I, I don't go online. I, I'm not a good redeemer. Don't put me in charge of redemption. I don't like redeeming. If the reward's big enough, you know, we'll give you $200. Okay, I'm redeeming. Because that piece of paper's got privilege. And I'm all in. It's based on certain things. But the point is, who gets to choose? The Redeemer gets to choose whether he redeems or doesn't redeem. They don't, it's not forced upon the Redeemer. You get to choose. And I thought it was also interesting, too, this, this, this phrase he used, um, verse 22. Uh, what if God, willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much, his phrase just hits me, endured with much patient vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. What if he endured us? And he endures others. Let's take chicken farmers. I don't know if you've known any. I've been to a couple chicken farms. Chickens are noisy, and they are smelly. They poop everywhere without regard. Can't be trained. What if you endured with much patience noisy, smelly chickens? Because you wanted to redeem a couple. What if you took a couple of those chickens and you redeemed them? You put them over here. I'm going to keep those. Those, those are going to be my, my chickens. But what do you do with the rest? You sell them to Chick-fil-A. They go to the slaughter. They go to destruction. Is that not fair? Well, sure it is. It's Redeemer rights. It's Creator rights. God is fair. He was fair with Moses. He was fair with Pharaoh. He's fair as our Creator. He's fair as our Redeemer. The fact that he would endure with much patience any of us is enormous. It's huge. It's amazing. Where does that leave us? It leaves us begging for God's mercy. Because God's the boss. Because God is in charge. You know, I looked it up. Because I figured somebody would ask me. Election is found in the Bible six times. Always. It's a reference to salvation. The word predestination or predestined is found in the Bible 28 times. Always. It is a reference to salvation. The Bible never says he is predestined to hell. The Bible never says he is elect unto hell. Each time those words are used, it is because God is dispensing mercy to choose some for what they don't deserve. That's our God. So fair. 
so gracious and so merciful. Let's pray together. Father, how could we hear such truth from your word and not plead with you for mercy? And not only for our own sake, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, but Lord, be merciful to my sons to my daughters, to my family, to my friends. We are all eternally lost and going to hell without a God of grace and a God of mercy. As we sung earlier, let our boast be in the mercy of Christ. Unless you send your Son, O oh Lord, to die in our place and to grant us mercy, there is no hope. May we as a people begin to see that. Instead of wanting privilege, instead of wanting equality, instead of wanting to be like someone else, let us want mercy. Let us plead for mercy. Let us depend upon the mercy of a gracious God. Father, for those in this room that know they have never had the mercy of God poured out in their lives, rain down from heaven, O oh God, showers that overflow. Bring mercy to this place and let us glorify and honor you for your saving work. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.